1: Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeart Radio app, and the Bloomberg Business app.
2: Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Quite the week here in Washington, striking down today, striking down as many expected, President Biden's student debt forgiveness plan, 63 6-3 ruling, another one. The court also ruling today that a Christian wedding website designer has the free speech right to deny customers having same-sex marriages. It's what we have here on the final day of the term. And we are waiting to hear from President Biden again today. He's likely to speak a bit later, is our expectation, before he heads off uh, to Camp David, waiting on an official time. Of course, we will bring his comments to you when he does. But we also have a pretty good idea of what he's going to say. The president out with a statement a short time ago, just moments ago. The hypocrisy, he writes, of Republican elected officials is stunning. They had no problem with billions, he writes, in pandemic-related loans to businesses. And those loans were forgiven. But when it came to providing relief to millions of hardworking Americans, they did everything in their power to stop it. He goes on to refer to his remarks later. He'll have more on this, but says the fight is not over. We go straight to the Supreme Court right now and get a moment with Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter who has been looming large this week. Uh, As we wind things up and Greg, we finally got our final opinions here. And this is another big one as the ideology of the court, a second day in a row here, weighs against the Biden administration. How significant.
3: Yeah, very significant. You know, up until these last couple of days, I might have said to you, "This is a Supreme Court term that showed that this conservative revolution had some limits to it." There are yeah. a number of cases where, where where the conservatives didn't prevail. But in the last three days, we've certainly seen the muscle of of the Republican-appointed justices: three, uh, six, three decisions, all of them very big, uh, kind of sweeping in their own ways, striking down college uh, affirmative action. Uh, basically carving out a a First Amendment right to uh, not have to comply with anti-discrimination laws Mm -hmm. and, of course, striking down President Biden's student loan relief.
2: Well, I'll tell you, there are a few things to pick through there. Um, To your point, the the ideology here of the court coming into focus, as a lot of people expected, particularly on these two. But, Greg, uh, it it appeared to be two separate opinions uh, to, to reach conclusion on student debt relief. How did that work?
3: Yeah, so the, so there were actually two separate challenges that were before the court, and one of the key questions was did either of these chal- sets of challengers have the legal right to have standing to to, to challenge it? And and the one the court uh, tossed out had to do with uh, two borrowers who said uh, we weren't getting enough out of this student loan relief, um, but the court then in the second opinion, the more important one, said these six states that are were challenging it did have the legal right to challenge it because. There was, uh, some impact on their, their, uh, their treasuries, or at least Missouri's treasury. It was one of the states. Uh, and that was the case where the court went on to say, and then we decide the education department and the president exceeded their authority. They did not, that they can forgive loans on a smaller scale, but not this huge extent.
2: In terms of the First Amendment case here, the uh, the the website designer, uh, a lot of people thought of this as kind of like the next wedding cake case. Is it different than the one we remember from Colorado?
3: Well, it, it, it certainly uh, has a lot of similarities. Both out of Colorado, um, perhaps the biggest difference is the court decided this case on free speech grounds. The 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 the. the case you're remembering involving a baker who didn't want to provide cakes for same-sex weddings, uh, it w- was more of a religious rights challenge, or also included that component to it. Uh, you know, so this, this decision today, by its terms, applies to businesses that engage in expression. What exactly that's going to involve uh, it remains to be seen with, with future litigation, but th- they're certainly uh, of a piece in terms of, of efforts to carve out a First Amendment exception to anti-discrimination laws.
2: It does seem that that, uh, that could be precedent setting for a lot of different cases here, Greg. Uh, do we have a peak inside the next Supreme Court term?
3: Yeah, the next Supreme Court term, uh, we just got a a number of new cases today that the court agreed to hear, including uh, another gun case. It's a case involving uh, whether uh, the federal ban for people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders, whether that violates the Second Amendment. And then we've got a a number of cases that are going to go to separation of powers and the authority of federal agencies. A new case the court agreed to hear today attacks the the use of in-house judges at the Securities and Exchange Commission, Uh, a federal appeals court uh, found a number of constitutional problems with that system. If the Biden administration loses that case, that could really weaken the power of the SEC Hmm. and and other regulatory agencies.
2: Fascinating. Uh, The nine-month term uh, will begin in October and I know we'll be talking a bit more then uh, when that time comes. But, Greg, we can't thank you enough for all the help this term. And the last couple of days have been super busy for you. Thanks for joining us here, as always, on Sound On. He's our Supreme Court expert joining us from the Supreme Court, Greg Store, who I hope is getting a long weekend. As we add the voice of Donald Ayer, I've been looking forward to this conversation. On a day like this and following yesterday, the former U.S. Deputy Attorney General argued 19 times before the Supreme Court and is with us now on Bloomberg Radio it's great to have you back, sir. I wonder your initial reaction to these last two days—not just today, but these two six-three rulings that really seem to expose once again uh, the ideological lines on this court.
4: Uh, yeah, it's great to be with you. I I agree with the comments I just heard your expert share, and I think the theme here is that this court and the conservative majority on it has some. Particular things in mind. Some of some of them have had them in mind for a very long time, and they're going to pursue them. And they're, they're they, affirmative action, of course, was one in the sights of the chief justice and and others on the court for a very long time. The theme of the others, I think, really is um, the limitation of the powers of the government even under legislation that seems on its face to give them those powers. Um, the, the discussion in the majority and dissenting opinions in the student loan case really is incredible in the discussion of the power that was given to waive or modify mm-hmm. requirements of the regulations or of the statute. And somehow or other, the chief justice and, and the six managed to come to the conclusion that that did not include this power just because there was four thirty billion dollars at issue um, the you know the, the uh, First Amendment case isn't uh, specifically about the power of the well it is it's about the power of any government not just the federal government um, and now the very open-ended possibility that that people who have not just religious objections which we've seen before in a number of cases people mm-hmm. objecting to on religious grounds to certain, um, you know, public accommodation or other requirements. But now, because I have an opinion or a view or a, a First Amendment conviction about something, I can't be made to do something that might be described as expressive of my views. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very limiting on, at least potentially very limiting, on, on the, the capacity of government to pass laws that demand that, certain classes of people not be discriminated against. Yes, right. um, and I want to throw in one other from much earlier in the term where the court in the Sackett case involving the Clean Water Act took, even Justice Kavanaugh agreed, a quite unreasonable reading of the Clean Water Act to say that it didn't include the ability to regulate wetlands, which were right next to or pertinent to um Uh, waters of the U.S. that clearly were regulated. So really Mm -hmm. the court is going after the power of the federal government, um, even under statutes that seem to give it, and also to some degree the power of of any government to restrict uh, convictions and and viewpoints that people have.
2: See, this is why we wanted Donald there. Let's pick through a couple of these. Uh, The student debt uh, case today, how does the major questions doctrine play into this when the three liberals in dissent say the states lacked the legal right to challenge the plan and that Congress authorized the forgiveness plan?
4: Well, it, it, it was brought in inferentially in the chief justice's opinion um, as, a, as a way of sort of trying to lend some support, which I, I must say I didn't find very persuasive. But trying to lend some support to the idea that this phrase, waive or modify, Mm -hmm. just wasn't clear enough in saying that uh, the the secretary really had the power to waive the requirements of the statute. Somehow or other, you needed more. Because why? Because $430 billion is a big deal. That's a lot of money. And they should have had to be clearer than saying that they could waive the requirement. Um, I don't know how you get much clearer, but Hmm. the court wants them to be clearer. So they're willing to really go a good long way and and do it in lockstep of the six, including the chief, um, in order to limit the powers of the federal government to do, I I don't know where it all ends, to do what is the question. Um, But really, I think... The scary thought really for me is that as as my friend Charles Freed the former solicitor general said yeah this court he said a few months ago that this court seems to want to repeal the 20 uh, the 20th century. Um and that's what wow. this feels like to me is a court that really wants a government that's more like the one we had in the ni- in the 1800s.
2: Wow. That's quite a statement uh coming from you. We heard the Chief Justice get to some of your point in arguments uh, that took place earlier this year. Listen.
4: In in an opinion we had a few years ago uh, by Justice Scalia, he talked about what what the word modify means. And uh, he said modified, in our view, connotes moderate change. He said it might be good English to say that the French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility, but only because there's a figure of speech called understatement and a literary device known as sarcasm. We're talking about half a trillion dollars
2: uh, and 43 million Americans. A salient point?
4: Well, I think if if you only had the word modify, it, it might carry some weight. Um, but I, I don't know how much weight, really. I think a lot of that was embroidery by Justice Scalia on what the word modify means. But when you put the word wave with it, um, you know, you wave, wave, or modify – Boy, oh, boy, if you can waive it, you can waive it, it seems.
2: If you see the court turning back the clock, essentially is your point. Now that we know about the next term, there's going to be a major new Second Amendment case coming here. They will hear the appeal of a ruling that declared a, a law in 1994 unconstitutional that bars gun possession by people who are subject to a domestic violence restraining order. Where, where do you think the court goes on that?
4: Well, I don't know. I mean I I don't know. And, and what one of the there's another interesting dimension of this term that goes with all we've just been talking about. And then and, and you all are quite of course are well aware of you know the Moore v. Harper case recently, um, the yeah. Allen V. Milligan case involving Alabama redistricting. And frankly, people jumped up and down with glee because in Al in Alan V. Milligan What the court did was really just apply the law as it's existed under the Voting Rights Act. There was great trepidation that the court was going to roll back once again the requirements of the Voting Rights Act, but they didn't do it. Um, The other day in U.S. v. Texas, the court basically rejected arguments by states um, essentially trying to tell um, immigration authorities in this administration – in what order they have to arrest people for immigration offenses, and the Mm. court rejected that. So the court seems to be picking and choosing um, the things that it's going to go way far down the road in a quite extreme direction on, and you can come up with a few more. You know, they they upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act, which many people thought was going to be in trouble. Yeah, President Biden said
2: this is not a normal court.
4: Well, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think it's not a normal court, and I would be very interested to be a bug on the wall huh. listening to their discussions if they have them. You know, And among the group of five or six, depending on how you count, who looked an awful lot you know, from Dobbs and other cases to be in lockstep on a whole array of things, and on mm-hmm. these issues we've just been talking about, the affirmative action, the student loans, the First Amendment case, and Sackett, still in lockstep to take very extreme positions the one thing i'm hopeful of it's not a lot to hope for but i'm hopeful that they've internalized the idea that they can get away with that stuff they think without hopefully destroying public trust too much in the court
2: donald Aaron, we're out of time time. i'm afraid i want to thank you for joining us as always this is bloomberg
5: thank you bye-bye Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at stiefel.com. That's S T I F E L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas and Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Boy, it's been it's been a busy couple of days and it is now over. This is the final day of the term. The final opinions released with a big one here for the Biden administration and not a surprise inside the beltway as the court tosses out President Biden's student loan debt forgiveness plan. He's out with a statement, says the fight is not over and I will have more to announce when I address the nation this afternoon, remembering November Of last year, when he made the case for this idea on a legal basis.
5: Republican special interest and elected officials sued to deny this relief, even for their own constituents. But I'm completely confident my plan is legal. But right now, it's on hold because of these lawsuits.
2: Well, it's not feeling very legal at the moment, but there are also different avenues that the administration could take, and we're going to be learning more about them as the day rolls on. Let's get into some of this. Uh, With June Grasso, I'm really glad that June is available in a pretty busy day for her, certainly as the host of Bloomberg Law. She joins us from our studios in New York. And June, you know, much like people were talking loopholes yesterday following the affirmative action decision, the big conversation now is, well, what's the plan B for Joe Biden? Because Democrats don't want him to stop in this hunt. What's he going to be able to do?
6: Well, it depends on if it's appealed to the Supreme Court, because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know that this Supreme Court has used this theory, and it's called the major questions yes, doctrine, yep. and it's a new kind of theory. It just They just invented it about a year ago, and um, they have used that to hold— Biden administration, to constrain the Biden administration, to constrain the powers of agencies. And they did it in this case with the uh, student loans where the chief justice said that the president was taking the place of the legislature. And in this case, it seems like the court is taking the place of the president and the legislature in what they did. So um, and and also even the the initial standing to sue, which everyone looked at as being possibly the you know the, the barrier that the challengers couldn't get through. That means that you have a stake in the outcome. You know, they used a very attenuated theory to reach standing here. So you know, it's a lot to talk about in this case.
2: Well, there certainly is. Uh, And there's a lot to talk about this week uh, on the court, June. And, you know, we can broaden the conversation anywhere you want here. But this has been a real reminder that 6-3 isn't always (laughs) 6-3. And some of the cases, some of the rulings we saw earlier in this week had people thinking, well, my goodness, this is feeling balanced. Maybe some of these cases have a chance. But in the last two days, it's been highly ideological
6: you know, it's always at the end of the term. Remember the end of last term? That's when we saw uh, them take away the constitutional right to an abortion. And this term, in two days, the conservative majority ended affirmative action, struck down the student loan relief plan, and, and dealt a setback to LGBTQ rights. And I think that they're feeling their power, and you can see that they're not afraid to exercise that power, even in circumstances where a lot of Americans would not be happy with it. And this is at a time when the court is being viewed with suspicion by a lot of people where the court is showing it has ethics problems and that there's nothing that can be done about these problems. The Supreme Court just gets to do, the justices, no matter what they do, they just go on. No, no kinds of consequences. And I think that, you know, there was a law professor that called this um, the YOLO Supreme Court because <laughs> they're going to take advantage of it and they're going to do what they want.
2: There's a, uh, you know, both sides have talking points on any issue that we're going to talk about uh, here today, June. The RNC kicked out a statement uh, on the ruling today referring to how we will no longer bail out the wealthy. Uh, And it's something that Chuck Schumer got to when arguments were held back in February, something that he addressed. Listen,
1: 90 percent of the relief going to out of school borrowers will go to those earning less than $75,000 a year. This isn't a handout to the wealthy, far from it. This is critical relief to working
2: and middle-class families. Why such a misunderstanding on that?
6: I I don't understand because I don't know any wealthy people with student loans. I mean, I know people with student loans who are struggling to pay them or have been until they had this uh, bit of relief. So I have no. It's just a way of turning things around, I suppose. But you know, wealthy people don't have student loans for the most part, and this is would not be going to them. I mean, there are so many people in this country who are struggling under the weight of student loans, and also. You know, graduate loans and law school loans, those just are mm-hmm. astonishing.
2: How about the issue of fairness, June?
6: Well, that And I'll is- ask you
2: that, by the way. Let me qualify that, because we, we've we heard the fairness issue since this first came up. Well, what about the people who did pay off their loans? What are we supposed to tell them? But there's also the matter of, of something like 16 million people who got letters saying that their loans were going to be expunged.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, the fairness thing, it's sort of, you look back, what about tax breaks for the rich I mean is there fairness in every aspect of our life I don't think so Um, that's the best argument I think that they can use is that wait I had to pay for my loans but also college costs a lot more now graduate school and law school cost a lot more right now so what they're paying now is compared to what people paid in the past is I think exponentially different but there that is I think one of the best arguments out there you know why make an exception now you know, that's yeah. sort of like the argument you have against a lot of entitlement programs. Mm-hmm.
2: So we have a peek into the, the next term here. It looks like the court will be dealing with a major new Second Amendment case uh, June. What are you going to be looking at in October?
6: Um, well, I'm going to take a break first. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's true. Uh, you know, I'm going to be looking at whether or not the court continues to expand in these areas. I mean, last year, of last term, we, of course, had the, um, the abortion decision, but also that gun decision. And I'm going to be looking at how they write these opinions. I'm finding that a lot of these so-called um, originalists on mm-hmm. the court, it, it, you have to look at how— sometimes you have two different originalists but they come to completely different uh, conclusions so i'm going to see that and also you know i'm interested in seeing the dynamics on the court and how it's going to play out because you see a lot of tension we saw this week you know justices take the bench and read dissents when they feel really strongly about it and this week sonia sotomayor read from the bench two days in a row and in her dissent she said Not I respectfully dissent, which is what they always say. She just just said I dissent, and the same with Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And there was even tension in the the, um, discussion today in the opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts and Elena Kagan, who are known to get along. So I don't know where they're going as far as that collegial uh, attitude they always claim they have.
2: I'm glad you could join us, uh, June. I know you've got a lot to work on here. Listen to Bloomberg Law, by the way, 10 p.m. weeknights and all weekend long here on Bloomberg Radio. And you can, of course, get the Bloomberg Law, the podcast, wherever you get your podcast to hear more from June on this. This is a pretty important week to be listening to Bloomberg Law. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. As we add the voice of Beth Akers from the American Enterprise Institute, where Beth is a senior fellow and was looking forward to this outcome when it came to uh, student loan debt relief. Beth, you think the court did the right thing?
7: I think the court did the right thing on two grounds. Obviously, the decision from the court today was about whether or not the administration had the authority to do this. I'm not a lawyer, but I think they made the right call there and saying that he didn't. But I also think the outcome for the nation is good, which is, you know, that we are not going to move forward with what I believe to be a bad policy.
2: OK, and, and tell me why.
7: Yeah. So, you know, something that's often missed in these conversations is that we already have relief programs that are in place for the borrowers who are truly struggling. Mm-hmm. So I was listening to the to the last segment as well. Um, you know, so what ends up happening is that when you layer a broad-based forgiveness program on top of safety nets that already exist, the people who are really benefiting from them are those who weren't eligible for the means-tested programs that already relieve Debt for people who are struggling. So basically, this is a really poorly targeted way of addressing what is a serious problem, which is that some people do have unaffordable debt. There's so much that does need to be done in the higher ed system, and it just feels like this was a political move that kind of would have exacerbated a lot of the challenges that we do have that are serious. Like, for example, encouraging people to borrow more in the future or allowing institutions to raise their prices in response to this new implicit subsidy from the government.
2: So how should this country manage an issue that seems to be undeniable right now, Beth, other than, you know, start going to cheaper colleges? Alexandria Mm Ocasio-Cortez tweeted earlier, the administration can use the Higher Ed Act. Uh, She says that was our position from the start to continue loan forgiveness before payments resume. Uh, what do you want to hear from the president later today?
7: Well, I don't believe that the Higher Ed Act gives the authority for them to do anything similar to what was attempted with this cancellation. I think where the president goes from here, you know, your guess is as good as mine about the direction he'll take. Mm -hmm. um, Because, you know, I don't think they have legal authority, but the question will be, whether they pursue another legally dubious strategy or they kind of come back to the negotiating table with Republicans and talk about some more nuanced but less like politically popular ideas for fixing problems. Um, One of the things the White House is already working on is expanding the generosity of the repayment program Mm -hmm. that already exists for borrowers. Um, which would actually go a really long way in delivering relief. Some estimates from the Brookings Institution say that under that new regime, if it goes into place, we'd only get about 50 cents on every dollar that's lent out through the federal lending program actually paid back. So that's a huge amount of relief going out to borrowers under that new system um, you know, that would be targeted towards people who are at the lower end of the earning spectrum. So that's mm-hmm. the direction we should be going, making sure that the safety nets work, there's administrative problems with the ones that we have today, which is maybe why people don't talk about them enough. And it's why borrowers don't even know they exist. So there's plenty of work to do to clean up that system.
2: Bloomberg has been out in front of the court uh, since the ruling here, Beth. And we've been talking to people on both sides of this. Sabrina Calizans, the managing director of the Student Debt Crisis Center, Uh, was out there and we spoke with her just a moment ago listen
8: for me personally I can't move out I don't I can't afford rent on my own I can't buy a car I can't invest in my own future so it's something that for a lot of young people we're paying a lot of close attention to and I think it's going to be a huge issue in the 2024 election
2: whether it is Um, in the election here Beth I just wonder I know this is not an easy or or maybe you don't think it's mm -hmm. a fair question but what would you tell Sabrina?
7: Well, I'd say, hey, look, if you're really struggling, um, you know, the, the, the description of her financial circumstances makes me think she's probably someone who's eligible to not have to pay back their loans through existing programs. So I would say her and anybody who feels that way should reach out to the servicer for their student loans, look up on the Department of Education website what programs are available to them, and they may be pleasantly surprised.
2: So this uh, is, is not going to go away. Today. As I mentioned, the president's going to be talking. I asked you what you wanted to hear from him. I just wonder if his next plan is going to end up in court.
7: No, that's a question I have. I mean, I'm not sure if the best political strategy for him at this point is to put forth another um, kind of aggressive proposal that then does get caught up in court because then they don't have to have resolution of this issue necessarily before the next election cycle. So I think it's possible they go that route. Um, maybe even likely, as I'm sort of thinking out loud <laughs> as I'm talking to you here. Um, but that's definitely a reasonable path forward from a political, political perspective. I think that's disappointing for Americans because I think we really are in need of real solutions for student lending. Um, you know, every day students are taking out more and more debt in this system that we claim to be broken, but we're not fixing um, other than through these means that are one-time fixes that won't mm-hmm. even help the borrowers who are taking out their debt today necessarily. So, so what
2: do, what um, do you want to see happen I, I, then? What's the E.I.
0: want to see?
7: I would love to see the president come back to the table. Um, Senate and House Republicans have put forward some really reasonable legislation ideas on how to reform the safety net to make it safe and less risky to go to college in this country. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see the president and Democrats more broadly engage in that. I think that's probably optimistic to think that that would be the next step, though.
2: Glad you could join us, Beth. Uh, Beth Akers with the American Enterprise Institute uh, to try to bring some perspective here.
5: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you
2: get your podcasts. As the Supreme Court blocks student loan relief just a day after striking down affirmative action 6363, no big surprises here in Washington, but a lot of questions as we dive into these opinions and figure what next steps are on both of these issues. We already told you that Harvard was exploring its options when it comes to affirmative action. And you better believe the president is, when it comes to student loan relief, he's going to be speaking just about an hour from now, assuming all things are on time before he heads out uh, to Camp David on the student loan debt story following that ruling today. But really looking forward to hearing from David Weston on this. As you, of course, know him as the host of Wall Street Week, he spent a good deal of time in the Supreme Court uh, clerking for the SCOTUS. And he's with us now from our studios in New York. David, uh, it's great to have you here. Pretty remarkable end to this term. Uh, I have some specific questions for you and some general ones where I'll start here because the court has reminded us that elections matter. Yeah, that's exactly right. And to some extent, uh, Joe, it strikes me that
9: elections matter because they reflect to some extent the will of at least a lot of the people. I mean, when you talk about things like the affirmative action case, the fact is the United States is pretty badly divided on that. It's not uniform on one side or the other. So it's not just the Supreme Court necessarily going off on its own. Yep. It is reflecting a good portion, at least, of the American people's sentiment right now.
2: Well, then what do you make of President Biden yesterday as he's leaving the podium in the Roosevelt Room? Somebody, you know, cries out about uh the court, and and he turned around and said, "This is not a normal court, uh, but it is the one that uh, that Americans signed up for when they elected Donald Trump."
9: Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the president had in mind. Certainly, he didn't like this result. He yeah. made that very clear. Uh, I'm not sure what's abnormal, but I think it is fair to say, and a lot of people have said this, that uh, the court has become more political it feels like. It reaches out and reaches into more political issues than it has in the past and seems to be coming down a particular direction. Certainly that's the perception and I must say I, I don't think it's entirely misguided. In that case I guess it's not normal in a sense it's
2: not the court from 30 years ago. Sure it's a different court uh, but to your point there's nothing necessarily abnormal about it. It's continuing to function um, and you know look we, so we, we're hearing a lot of uh, uh, different stuff. Well maybe you'd s- stick with today for a moment student debt uh, yeah. relief. Do, do you Do you see the president having many options here because Democrats are very upset with him? For not getting this done yet.
9: Well, I, I, the two things I'm sure of is that he's had his team working on options because this is yeah. not a huge surprise. Shouldn't well, have been correct, a huge yeah. surprise. So I'm sure they've been going through a lot of options, and I would be surprised if he doesn't come up with something because he clears clearly seems pretty committed to this. At the same point, the only chance he had was really on the rather technical issue of standing, which of course, in one of the c- cases, actually they said they don't have standing because I think many legal star- scholars thought that he'd really stretch the meaning of the statute beyond what a lot of people would say was reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't
2: too surprising on the merits, as it were, how the court came out. As far as the affirmative action case goes, we heard from the governor of California, and and everyone can imagine where Gavin Newsom is going to fall on this, but but a lot of people don't know that California many years ago ended affirmative action uh, through a a proposition. And, And the governor spoke about the experience the state has had Since then, I'd love for you to react to this. Uh, For
4: those that are wondering what's going to happen in their states, they don't only have to look to California to know exactly what's going to happen. You're going to see a significant decline in African-American and Latino admissions in institutions of higher learning. We had roughly a 50 percent decline, just shy of 50 percent decline within the first three years of Prop 209 at UC Berkeley, UCLA. Just last year, just to underscore the nature of the world we're living in. Only about 228 uh, African-American students were admitted at Berkeley, 7,000 admissions, just 228. I'm very concerned about this. I think you should be as well. And uh, I'm I'm frankly unsurprised because we have a Supreme Court that wants to bring us back to a pre-1960s
10: world.
2: Now, I I know that was a long uh, sound cut. Forgive me. I just felt like it was worth playing the whole thing, uh, David, because this is such a divisive issue. But it's hard to argue with data.
9: Well, it also uh, really addresses something the Supreme Court talked about. And I must say, it wasn't just California. The same thing happened in my home yeah. state of Michigan, uh, huh. involving the University of Michigan, where yeah. they had a state initiatives, and it has had a similar effect on admissions.
2: Eight and, states.
9: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and as you know, Joe, um, if you look at the Supreme Court opinions, one of the things that they held out was, well, OK, not based on race. You can do it based on socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. And what those statistics suggest in California and Michigan and other states is it's not all that easy uh, to really get to where many people think we ought to be in terms of diversity, simply through socioeconomic Mm -hmm. issues. Uh, And We got to talk to Darren Walker, who's the head of the Ford Foundation uh, today for Wall Street Work tonight. And he he has an op-ed piece in the New York Times today, which I think is quite powerful. But he also made it very personal because he is the product himself of affirmative action. This is part of what Darren had to say. Well, David, I would not be here with you today were it not for affirmative action there is no doubt that an entire generation of african-americans and latinos in this country have been propelled forward in part because of affirmative action i'm a proud affirmative action baby i benefited from living in a country that believed in my potential and even though i was a poor kid living in a rural community america cheered me on this country wanted
2: me to win and succeed. How about that?
9: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I found it very powerful because he has had the experience himself. And one of the things he told me was the reaction to his op-ed piece, it, the, the messages he got that disturbed him were not the ones that disagreed with him, saying that he thought that the, this Supreme Court decision did not reflect the values of America. The ones that bothered him were the ones that said, y- that's not America anymore. You shouldn't even be expecting that of America hmm. today. Hmm. He said those are the ones that really bothered him, young people who
2: really are almost giving up on some of the values that many people have treasured over the years. There was another ruling today as we spend time with David Wesson, and I look forward to that full conversation uh, on Wall Street Week. Uh, But it was uh, this LGBTQ uh, case, a ruling that a Christian wedding website designer has the free speech right to deny customers who are having same-sex marriages. And I saw a tweet from a columnist named David Bernstein. He writes, a little weird that a private business can choose to deny a customer because they're a member of a protected class but a private university cannot choose to accept a customer because they're a member of a protected class. What yeah, do you think is, of that?
9: There is some irony there. Of course, one of the universities involved is university in North Carolina, which is last time I checked, is a public university, and mm-hmm. Harvard gets a lot of money. But but there yes. is a certain tension here on what we're allowing agents, individual actors, whether they're universities or corporations or local companies, to be able to do and not do. There, there is some inconsistency there. Although I will say, with respect to the decision today, mm-hmm. it, it followed pretty much on the heels, you remember, that wedding case about yes, three years ago right. or so. So again, it was not entirely a shock. It is a direction that the court is heading, and it's not being very subtle about it. The question is, what, are there workarounds?
2: Right, absolutely. Uh, we've all been learning about the major questions doctrine uh, in this term, and it's a pretty big deal. It's really sort of the the intellectual core of what we're talking about this week, isn't it?
9: Well, it is. And, and the major question actually really largely has to do with how much can uh, be read into statutes. How specific mm-hmm. does Congress have to get? And uh, a recurrent theme of this ma- this majority in this court is saying you've got to be very explicit. Now, that is a way of dialing back on some of things that some regulatory agencies have done and even some courts have interpreted to say it's just got to be a lot more explicit than you thought. Uh, So, again, major questions doctrine has been around, hasn't been used Mm -hmm. very much. Mm -hmm. So uh, to go back to your question about uh, President Biden, I'm not sure it's fair to call this abnormal, Uh, but it is uh, decidedly
2: in a different direction from what we've had over the last generation. That's great perspective uh, and and important for our our listeners to absorb here. I think people are going to be spending a lot of time thinking about some pretty heady stuff this weekend. Uh, and I wonder, David, what else you have for us on Wall Street Week tonight?
9: Oh, well, actually, we have the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer of Blackstone, a fellow named Michael Che, who is yeah, absolutely great. fascinating about where the economy is, where business is, and what he's seeing in terms of his deals. And we also have Sheila Bear, You know Sheila Bear used to yeah, run the FDIC because sure. we had those bank stress tests. Remember those mm-hmm. this week? Absolutely. Uh, where the banks came out all right, It really asking, what did they tell us, if anything, and would they have addressed some of the questions we had with things like Silicon Valley Bank? So that's what we're having up
2: tonight. Uh, looking forward to it. It's pretty amazing here. End of the month, uh, end of the quarter, it's the end of the first half, Wall Street reaching new highs. A couple of months ago, uh, people would have looked at you like you were from Mars if you told them that.
9: Well, by the way, Joe, one of the things that some people have pointed out is if you went back to January 1, you would have predicted China would be way way coming back, really yes, dramatically. Right. And our stock market would be down. And in fact, it's exactly the, the exact
2: opposite. Right. It- reminding us that no one really ever knows what they're talking about. I I, I sure don't. I'll I'll go to the front of that (laughs) line. Well, you know, always with a dose of humility. The great David Weston, I appreciate it, sir. Thanks so Uh, much, Welcome back, by the way. We missed you while you were gone. The host of Wall Street Week, former SCOTUS clerk. Got the real thing here, guys. And we're hearing from a lot of diverse voices and some awfully smart people here. uh, And I'm honored to share time with them on such an important day.
5: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Another day, another Supreme Court loss for the Biden administration as the court throws out the president's plan to forgive student loan debt. Back when arguments were held in February, The court's conservative majority was very skeptical of the legality of the plan. Reminding you, we're talking about $400 billion in loans here, Justice Neil Gorsuch, from that day in February.
4: People who've paid their loans, people who um, don't have planned their lives around not seeking loans um, and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place. And that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others.
2: We have a lot to talk about with our panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us on this Friday before the 4th of July weekend. Guys, it's great to have you here. And Jeannie, I'll start with you, not only as a political analyst, but of course, somebody who works in academia. Jeannie, if uh, you don't already know this and you should, as a political science professor at Iona University. Uh, This is, of course, not what President Biden wanted to see happen, Jeannie, but it is what you expected, isn't it?
8: It is what I expected, and I think Elena Kagan, I'm an enormous fan of Elena Kagan. She is a brilliant writer, and I think her dissent is so well worth reading. We heard her say the same thing in the oral arguments. They are putting this all under this major questions doctrine, which you just talked about. It's a new doctrine, it's fuzzy, it was first used in the EPA case in June. And at that time, she said this magically appeared, and it's a get out of text free card. Hmm. Because if you look at that doctrine and you look at the HEROES Act, It is very clear, if there is a national emergency, which a pandemic clearly is, The executive can act, and that is what happened here for the conservatives to now come in and say that that the act is not clear enough. How much clearer could they have been? This is a way for conservatives to read into the law the decision and the outcome of a policy they want. This is not the work of people who are conservative or restrained. And it is well worth reading her concerns because it's not about the policy, it's about who gets to decide, and that should be the executive and Congress who wrote the law.
2: Well, there's a lot here, uh, Rick Davis. It was argued politically, at least, uh, you know, among politicians here in Washington as an issue of fairness. How do you think the court did with this opinion?
10: Look, I mean, they're, <clears throat> they create their own level of fairness. Um, you know, uh, we've heard from uh, Don Ayers earlier about how this court has. Um, sort of balance some of their opinions, uh, you know, that uh, uh, have surprised people, including Biden saying that this court is different. I mean, I think everybody is coming to that conclusion after this week's activities. So yeah. the, the real question is, I think, you know, um, where do they go from here? Because some of these new cases they're taking up, especially the guns case, um, is going to continually, you know, change the culture in America. And this is, the impact is going to be felt for a long time. The question is, too, What do Democrats want to do about it? Right. Do they want to act in Congress to change things? Nancy Pelosi said when the original student loan deal was, was, was approached that it should be done by Congress. So it's nothing new that debate, but they're going to need some votes. And that means the election is very consequential to how they treat uh, this ongoing court. Well, let's get
2: into the, the next steps here because we are going to hear from president Biden, uh, before he heads out to camp David a little bit later on today, uh, it's unclear exactly what remedies he's going to suggest. The statement from the White House, uh, he called this unthinkable. Today's decision disappointing, but he says we should not lose sight of the progress we've made and that he will have more to announce. He used the word announce, he says, when I addressed the nation this afternoon. A tweet from Alexandria ocasio cortez Jeannie writes, it's very important to note this ruling does not remove Biden's ability to pursue student loan forgiveness. The administration, she says, can use the Higher Ed Act, our position from the start, to continue loan forgiveness before payments resume. They should do so ASAP. That would not uh, obviously be Congress writing new legislation there. Jeannie, would it work?
8: They could give it a try. I have no doubt it would be challenged in court, and we would be back here in a year or two again. Um, We do know that Biden has been meeting with his senior team since the decision came out, and they are going to address what they hope to be next steps. And the reality is is that politically, the Biden administration has always seen, regardless of the decision, this as a win for him. And what they're going to try to do now is continue to tell the American public that while the MAGA Republicans will stand up for business, They will throw you under the bus. You will pay back. Businesses won't. And they will continue to make this case. And you're going to continue to see what we heard from Schumer today. And you just read Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this MAGA right activist wing of the court. And they are engaged in trying to destroy our way of life. They have only big business on their minds. And that's what he's going to be talking about and taking steps to protect loans if he can.
2: No, we've heard some pretty heavy stuff already this hour. And I expected that to hear Donald Ayer talk about the court. Uh, was was really something to to suggest, Rick, that this court wants to turn us back uh, to the 1800s. I don't know if you have a thought on that, but the, the idea as well that the president thinks this is not a quote unquote normal court. I'm not I'm not really sure what normal means.
10: Well, I, I, I'm taking normal as saying that they give and they take away, you know, affirmative action, student loan forgiveness, uh, LGBTQ rights. You know, that obviously is uh, issues, Dobbs, that this administration doesn't like. But how about, you know, election law theory and the Alabama redistricting case and immigration and mm-hmm. Indian child welfare? I mean, like they have no complaints about that. So I, I think this is a little bit overblown. Uh, there's no question that this court is not just looking at precedent. They're looking at where we live in the world today, and they're making uh, decisions based on the current um, uh, situation, the current issues that are brought to the court. Uh, I don't think that's significantly different than any court we've seen in the last 50 years. So uh, I don't think we're looking so far back, but it is a challenge. And I think this court has put some real key political questions on the table that politics is going to have to start to look at And candidates are going to have to start to address. You'll notice there's been a very quiet um, uh, reaction to all this, you know, amongst the Republican presidentials.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Jeannie, I want to give you a chance to take a swing at that. What what does Joe Biden mean? Did he choose the right word there? Not a normal court when this is the exact court that Americans bought when they elected Donald Trump.
8: Yeah, I, I think he did choose the right word politically for that. It's something we keep hearing from him, which is to say these are extremists. I think one of the things that many Democrats um, believe, and as you we look towards uh, the, the election and they try to gin up the base, is this view that John Roberts has lost control of the car, that it has gone in the driver's seat now. You've got Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas, and they are driving the car out of control because this is not, in many of these cases, where an incrementalist like John Roberts would have gone. So I think he's going to keep contrasting a normal court and a normal conservative court that is should be restrained versus what he's seeing as a MAGA court. And I would just take exception to what Donald Ayer said. I, I, I think it's a great idea that they want to turn things back. But I think the reality is what they want to do is replace their own policy judgments for the judgments of Congress and the executive branch, and that doesn't necessarily mean turning back to the 18-1900s. It means how they see the world today, and they want to replace those views with their own and move the car forward, and that's where I think Kagan's dissent in the student loan case is so well worth reflecting on.
2: I wondered yesterday, Rick, if we were going to hear a lot of talk about court packing, if Democratic lawmakers who ended up on cable news might go there, if the president. Might go there. He was asked on MSNBC in this uh, <laughs> sit down interview uh, that he had with Nicole Wallace. He called it a mistake. Listen,
5: before I got elected, while I put together a group of constitutional scholars to try to expand the court, which I think is a mistake after all the, the, the judgment was that that doesn't make sense uh, because it can become so politicized in the future. Have Democrats
2: walked away from this, Rick?
10: You know, I did a word search on it right before the show started today, and it's huh. it, it, zero shows up. I mean, Isn't that you know, something? Yeah, it's really quite significant, I think, because two years ago, that's all that people were talking about, yeah. the run-up to Dobbs. And then the Dobbs decision, with all due respect to everything that's happened this week, was much more significant of an impact. We saw protests in the streets. We saw every politician making statements. So uh, compared to where we were a year ago and two years ago, It seems to me people are actually starting to get used to this court. They may not like the decisions it's making, but they're certainly not reacting the way they have in the past. Isn't that something?
2: Uh, We only have 30 seconds before we get an update on the news. Jeannie, is court packing out of the Democratic vocabulary this campaign?
8: I think it is for political reasons. They want to use this court. They're going to do what Nixon did in 68, run against this court. This court does not represent you. It's bad for you. If they change the court, they can't make that case. So it's out of contention because it's working for Democrats, they think, as they move to 24.
2: This is pretty heady stuff in a conversation you won't hear anywhere else today on the radio. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, everybody. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live
1: weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New
2: York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. One thing that we noticed pretty quickly after the Supreme Court ruling yesterday is the inbox got stuffed. Presidential candidates... Congressional candidates, everybody trying to raise money on this. And of course, it's a big day for doing so. Big deadline tonight at the end of the quarter here uh, for fundraising. So everybody's throwing something at all of this. Joe Biden even got Barack Obama involved.
5: Here's five reasons why I'm asking you to donate $5 to my campaign with some help from a friend. Hey, Barack. Hey, Joe. <laughs> Good to see you, man. Good to see you.
2: Back together again just to raise money one more time as we reassemble our panel. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, there's a lot to raise money on uh, right now, Rick. And as far as Republican primary candidates are concerned, this is going to go a long way to figuring out who ends up uh, winds up on a debate stage uh, in August, isn't it?
10: No, that's right. I mean, the idea of a money primary has been around a long time. But since the RNC uh, makes a requirement that you've got to have 40,000 discrete donors, and I think it's 20,000 of them in half those states, uh, has really raised the bar on the, quote, money primary. And I know that uh, probably half the field is scrambling right now to get every penny they can. And literally, I've gotten solicitations for send me one dollar. It's all I need to qualify <laughs> to be on the debate stage. And right. I mean, I, honestly, it's not about raising money anymore. It's about just getting on that dang stage.
2: But do you believe Ronald McDaniel sticks with the criteria here? Because a lot of candidates are complaining about it. And it's clear that they are not all going to take the pledge, for instance. Does the money uh, piece stay in, in, in place in the, in the polling requirement?
10: Uh, she's going to disenfranchise more than half the field in the first uh, or maybe first two uh, debates. So uh, that's a decision they're going to have to make as to whether they think that's an interesting debate. And if Donald Trump doesn't show, uh, what are they going to have, four people on the stage who've qualified and no Donald Trump? I mean, with all due respect to the RNC, I don't know who's going to watch that debate.
2: So maybe not so much. Uh, Jeannie, how important is this time uh, for Joe Biden, he's he's going he's going to the biggest voice he's really got out there as a surrogate, and that's Barack Obama. And it seems pretty early for that.
8: It, it does to call in the big guns like Barack Obama. But yeah. I, I do think this is critically important because as we've looked at his poll numbers they are, you know, his, his his approval rating remains very low, and so he has some challenges. So I think for that reason, and also, of course, he has some competition out there, like RFK Jr., who is showing in the polls. So I think they want to show, sort of knock out the competition and show that he has the support, both the money and the polls, to move this forward without much of a competition. And, you know, I think just to add on to the RNC, I think they may also get some pushback from voters who are fatigued by by the weird and constant emails I, I was struck by tim scott had an email basically <laughs> apologizing right. like i'm so sorry to ask again and you know it reminded me when i have to go out and sell girl scout cookies it's a painful <laughs> thing to ask for money so god bless these candidates who do it it's it's tough and the rnc may need to take a step back on that
2: there's a great story on the terminal about it they mentioned uh the tim scott email and another one from Alyssa slotkin Out with a long email. She's running for this uh, Michigan Senate seat. Uh, And I guess it's the the honesty uh, idea here, taking a shot at some of the phony deadlines that people throw out there. She writes, our goal is to give you the full context of why these actual deadlines are important. The sky will not fall if you do not contribute. The country will not descend into chaos, but you will help us compete. It's a good approach, Rick.
10: Well, look, every election cycle on the fundraising side has its trends, right? And now the trend is, uh, look, I apologize for having to ask you for money, but it's the only way I'm going to get elected. Uh, I'm actually not sure that's a great trend. I think you (laughs) want to ask people for money because you're going to do something. Uh, And I think, you know, with the kind of uh, month we've had, the idea that all of these aren't focused on. Uh, These various Supreme Court uh, decisions and Mm -hmm. and for Republicans, you know, running for a victory lap and saying this is why we raise money so that we can put people like this into office who can make this kind of change. I think that's a much more compelling uh, argument than, hey, give me a buck so I can get on a stage.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Ron DeSantis kicked out an appeal urging uh, people to donate because the fundraising total, he says, could be a tipping point for his bid. And I wonder uh, your thoughts on DeSantis and Trump at this point. We know Trump's been raising an enormous amount of money on the indictments. Ron DeSantis, I'd love to know your expectation. And I'll point to a new ad that the Trump campaign has out there. It's it's basically just a, a, a composite, and, an edit of how many times Ron DeSantis refers to his state of Florida while on a stage In New Hampshire, this is just a taste. Florida,
9: I have a unique vantage point as governor. ( expeditionientorections) And come to my free state of Florida. I was born and raised in Florida. And I never remember seeing a single California license plate (laughs) in the state of Florida. Florida. I met people in Florida. And I can cite you statistics about Florida. Florida. They're going to greener pastures. The number one landing spot is the free state of Florida. Florida, 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 Florida,
5: Florida, 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 Florida,
2: Florida. He, we know he's down in the polls, Genie. Is he going to be down in the fundraising?
8: Joe Matthew, where is he from again? I'm so confused. I think it's Florida. <laughs> I think it's Florida. Um, you know, I, I think he is pushing hard. I, we have to give our friends at Politico kudos for Jessica Piper noting the three times last week he had a subject line, do not tell my children that men can get pregnant. That's quite oh a way to God. try to raise to raise uh, funding. You know, it does catch your eye when they come through. But, yeah. you know, he, he is really struggling and I think he's, we talked about this earlier in the week, if he's got to get some, he's got to make some headway in New Hampshire. And so I think he is advised to focus a little bit more on New Hampshire and Iowa voters Mm -hmm. and a little less on what he's done in Florida.
2: Uh, Rick, what's your thought here? How important will it be for Ron DeSantis to show that he can pull in money?
10: Yeah, look, I mean, he's been an avid fundraiser and has over $100 million, you know, in his super PAC. So he's, he's, he's not the one in this field I think, who has to show that he can and uh, raise large amounts of money to keep mm-hmm. up with Donald Trump. Donald Trump's going to probably raise more money than anybody else because he was a former president. And he has a bigger sure. network. Yeah. And who knew that getting indicted would actually be a fundraising strategy? Uh, but the reality <laughs> is, uh, uh, I think the DeSantis machine, he gets a lot of large donor uh, uh, support. And uh, the question is going to be, is he is he digging in to some of this small donor? Uh, fundraising that donald trump's been so prolific about that's right
2: does he say florida too much new hampshire is that a thing
10: i think anytime you say you're a state outside of new hampshire other than new hampshire it's a thing yeah. okay. I, I really question the judgment just making sure with rick davis and Jeannie shanzano
2: our deep analysis here on sound on we're going to stick with ron desantis for a moment because he's eaten the coal-fired pizza at grimaldi's on fox it's next with Rick and Jeannie. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live
1: weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your
2: podcasts. Donald Trump probably could never have imagined it happening when he told Sean Hannity recently on Fox that without his endorsement, Ron DeSantis never would have been the governor of Florida. Couldn't have
5: never gotten a nomination. He would be working in either a pizza parlor place or a law office right now, okay? And he wouldn't be very happy.
2: A pizza parlor place, which is exactly where we found DeSantis yesterday while he was raising money in New York. He went to Grimaldi's. It appeared on Jesse Waters' new show. It used to be Tucker Carlson's program and. He talked to the owners about the attack on coal and wood-fired pizza ovens we told you about earlier this week, the draft rules by the city's Environmental Protection Agency. Here he is. So in
5: Florida,
9: when they went after the gas stoves, we just made gas stoves tax-free in Florida, no sales tax. We will do something similar uh, for these coal, coal-fired coal ovens. And so if we need <laughs> New York City pizza to come down to Florida, we're going to roll out the red carpet all for right. you guys. Thank you, Golan. <laughs> all right.
2: Just let her rip like this. Yeah. Then, then he's putting rip. the pizza Ooh, in the oven. Right. They love it. He's got the peel out there going in the coal oven. Jeannie Shanzano, it's very New York. But if you want to win over Tucker Carlson's audience, do you do that on Jesse Waters' new show?
8: And do you do that in a suit and tie? Well, I he mean, did have a tie on. He, it, it was very awkward. It was cringeworthy. And I think it's going to encourage Donald Trump to call him meatball Ron again. So, you know, he's got to be very careful. And don't <laughs> even remind us about eating pudding with his fingers because well, that would come up as well.
2: I've seen references to that uh, frequently here in the doom scroll this morning on Twitter. Rick is eating pizza live on TV, even without a fork, a faux pas for a presidential candidate.
10: Uh, no, uh, pizza, uh, you go to Philadelphia, you better have a cheese steak, yeah. donuts, every chance you can. I mean, you know, it's, it's a political diet, right? You're not supposed to eat healthy food. You don't go to get a charcuterie platter. That's for sure. <laughs> or a crudité that someone learned in the
2: midterms, but is exactly. that exactly same question though? Is that fair ground? Now you go on Jesse Waters' show, even though Tucker Carlson's people are still worked up.
10: Yeah, I think that uh, the, the page has been turned, and uh, Fox has its own uh, 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 audience, and, and that's who he's appealing to. <laughs> when the moon hits your eye, great conversation, like as always, with
2: Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, our good day. friends here and the best analysts in the business. I hope you both have a great when holiday. I'm Joe Matthew like in Washington, where I want pizza. A lot more to follow here on this important day in the nation's There's capital. A Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern time at Bloomberg.com.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.